0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome, and welcome to The Movie Passport, a podcast series about world cinema. Today, we'll be traveling to the country of Egypt. My name is Duncan, or Chris, on the internet, and joining me to chat about Egyptian cinema, we have...
1: on or or Discord.
0: Great. Thanks for coming back, Abdallah, to uh, talk about some more Arab cinema, and thanks everyone for listening. Before we get into our main discussion, I'd like to give the listener a brief history of Egypt and its film industry. So egypt is a country located in the northeast corner of africa it has one of the longest histories of any country and is considered a cradle of civilization ancient egypt saw some of the earliest developments in writing agriculture urbanization organized religion and central government it is home to the nile delta the culmination of the longest river on earth and the great pyramid of giza the only man-made wonder of the world still standing Throughout its history, Egypt has gone through periods of native and foreign rule, most notably by the Persian and Macedonian empires. Egypt was an early and important center for Christianity, but was largely Islamized by the 7th century. Throughout the Middle Ages, Cairo grew to become the largest and richest city in the Arab world. However, the country also experienced widespread disease and famine, allowing it to be conquered by the Ottomans and then the British. A nationalist movement fermented in Egypt in the early 20th century, and after a series of revolts, an independent republic was established. Egypt has always had a thriving film industry, with Cairo often referred to as Hollywood on the Nile. The 1940s to 60s marked the golden age of Egyptian cinema, Melodramas and comedies were very popular during this period, as they allowed audiences to escape from the country's political and economic turmoil. However, epics such as Saladin the Victorious and thrillers like The Nightingale's Prayer were also celebrated. The 1970s and 80s saw a transition towards more serious cinematic subject matter, including poverty, corruption and political action. Egypt has produced many film stars such as Omar Sharif, Shokri Saram, Soad Hosni, Ahmed Zaki, Nadia El Gendi, and more recently, Mona Zaki and Ahmed Al-Sakha. Cairo hosts the annual Catholic Centre Festival, the oldest film festival in Africa. So that is a brief recap, but there is lots, lots, lots more to discuss. Um, So my first question to you, Abdallah, is uh, do you have any connection to Egypt? Have you ever been there and have you watched many Egyptian films?
1: I've been to Egypt when I was three years old, so I don't remember much of that, so it doesn't count. (laughs) But in terms of Egypt's... Entertainment in general, TV and movies, is mm-hmm. it has a big influence like across that Arab speaking uh, region. So Egyptian TV shows and movies are always on TV, and of course in the cinemas there are always. Like, I grew up going to Egyptian movies in the cinema, so it had a, a very important presence. Mm-hmm. although like some names you wasn't part of the list of the people you mentioned that had a big influence at least like remembering as a kid is Mahal akin which is, is a comedian uh, you know in the black and white movies that he had a big presence like growing up mm-hmm.
0: yeah it was amazing reading a bit about I had no idea how big it was but I mentioned last time when we were talking about Kuwaiti cinema You said that Egyptian cinema had a huge presence in the Arab world that's similar to the way Hollywood has a huge presence in the kind of Anglosphere or English-speaking world. Which I never knew, but when I started to read about it, uh, it was amazing to learn how how thriving it was and how it was. It's always been thriving. Um, like it's gone through periods of like sometimes the government funds it and sometimes it's funded more by the private sector, but it's always been huge. And I guess that's because it's got a huge market in Egypt and throughout the Middle East and North Africa. But it's really exciting to learn about some of these films. And there was so many films. You posted a list of all these recommendations, and I started looking into like the sort of top hundred Egyptian films, and they all. Sound really, really interesting. The only exposure, I, I've never, I had never seen an Egyptian film as far as I can remember until this podcast, but uh, the only exposure is uh, Omar Sharif. I obviously know him from um, Hollywood films like uh, Lawrence of Arabia and um, Dr. Zhivago. I really love Dr. Zhivago and I loved his performance in that. But um, other than that,
1: there's also, I think, the show Rami that came out a couple of years ago. That one also one of the cast members is also a famous actor. I don't remember but I've seen him in, I think maybe TV shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a surprise when I was watching Rami and he popped up. Mm-hmm. Like there's somebody who I've known, you know mainly speaks uh, in you know Egyptian Arabic. All of a sudden he speaks English in this TV show,
0: right. And um, yeah, I, also the country of Egypt, I feel like I know very little about its sort of modern history. I've learned a lot about ancient Egypt in school, like we learned about King Tutankhamun and um, like Cleopatra and its relationship to sort of ancient Greek history. But uh, anything in the, in the sort of modern era, I know very little about. Um, It kind of re-entered the world stage, I guess, during the the Arab Spring uprisings. I saw a lot of coverage of what was happening in Egypt um, in the early 2010s. But um, other than that, not a lot. But I've always wanted to go there. I I find, like, the pyramids fascinating and and sort of frightening. There's a quote that I always associate with the pyramids, which is, like, man fears time and time fears the pyramids. So, uh, like uh, Mexico, the pyramids in Mexico, I've always wanted to go to... um, egypt to see the pyramids of giza and the sphinx um and my mum has been there i've seen like photos of when she was like in her early 20s sitting on the pyramids so i have that small connection but other than that very little connection to it
1: i would say likewise i would love to go see the pyramids although i have pictures of me at the pyramid but i don't remember them, but... <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but for me like Growing up in Kuwait, we, were, there is, I think, so. I think it's probably the largest uh, expats in Kuwait are from Egypt. Mm. So I did grew up, you know, interacting with a lot of Egyptians, whether classmates in school, teachers, or throughout. Like, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And, and do you have any, like, um, favorite Egyptian films from, like, that period when you lived in Kuwait, or like, were there big Egyptian films that came out that everyone was excited to go and see?
1: The first movie I wanted to see in the theaters was an Egyptian movie, it was like a drive-in mm-hmm. movie theater, which was also a unique experience. I think it's the, whole, the first and the last movie I saw. They saw in a drive-in,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and. I, I would i don't want to recommend it but it's the first one i saw i haven't seen in years uh which is like for egyptian in the American, yeah in the american university and that star is like like a comedy star around that time i don't know if he still acts but uh, i've seen a lot of his movies going in the movies oh, he's still he's still acting so he had that movie. He had a, a movie where he played an immigrant in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And the stereotypical journey of uh, Egyptian immigrants living out to, to, love, to live out more, more or less the American, American dream in Europe.
0: Mm-hmm. And your um, your friend recommended a bunch of movies. And your mum recommended a movie called uh, The Sin, I think it was. It wasn't the 1965 The Sin. It was an earlier film. A uh, uh, it's kind of like a musical family drama.
1: Yeah, so the movie that my my recommended, I think predominantly she recommended it because of the star of that movie, who was like a well beloved uh, singer actor
0: mm-hmm.
1: from the fifties and sixties.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was tossing up between um, picking that one and Cairo Station, and I ultimately ended up picking Cairo Station. Um, but I kind of wish I picked that one because it's more representative, I think you were saying, of what most Egyptian films were during the Golden Age. They're more sort of melodramas or comedies, whereas Kyra Station was a bit more out of the ordinary.
1: Yeah. I, the, you know, growing up, most of the movies I think I watched the TV where it on TV were as a lighter. Hmm better touch of them predominantly romantic comedies yeah yeah the movies we we watched the four movies are a little bit on the heavier side
0: (laughs) yeah i know i i felt bad well i i I picked Kat because i wanted to have a comedy in there but it's it's almost Mm -hmm. like a comedy tragedy um at times
1: i would say the Kat is probably the most representative of the kind of '90s movies, yep. yeah, yeah, '80s, '90s, even, even. I'm not sure what's the current, uh, you know, movie landscape. I would say it's it has like this kind of tone. To mm. it yeah, sure. The, the other two movies are they do stand out.
0: Yeah, were there any other movies you wanted to mention um, before we get into our main discussion?
1: The problem is that I don't remember. I I know I would recommend certain actors like yep. the, the stars of that era, like Saratwastri, which I think you mentioned. uh Hamama would be another one because uh, she was like she was nicknamed the, the the lady of the silver screen or something
2: like
1: that. Tadia hmm. uh, is another great actress with great movies, which we didn't like. We didn't see any the movies of those kind of stars of that of that golden kind of era of Egyptian cinema in the 40s, 50s.
0: Um, okay, so let's get into our main discussion. So uh, each host has uh, chosen a film about Egypt or set in Egypt and I believe, Abdullah, you'll be telling us about our first films.
1: So the fire station or the actual name, that is Hadid, is set in a train station in Egypt where we are following the stories of people that downtrodden who live and work in that train station. We follow three characters, Naoi, which is a cripple who lives in the train station and he sells newspapers. He's infatuated with the other person that we follow, Hanuma, who sells bootleg, uh, Coke, uh, and Pepsi for tourists, for and she's always trying to evade the police. And the third main character we we see in the movies, is Abusriya who's trying to unionize and he's engaged in a robot. And the whole uh, movie revolves around their day-to-day lives in that train station.
0: And uh, what did you think of the film? Was this the first time you'd seen it, Abdullah?
1: First time I saw this movie, I, I, uh, Should we can we like ruin the story and the ending? Or, yeah,
0: yeah, we can. Or as we discussed. We can assume the listener has watched it. If you haven't watched it, go and see it. Uh, I would say, like, uh, I I like the
1: kind of neo neo realism to the movie tone, but I, like I couldn't root for any of the characters, <laughs> and I felt they're they're not redeemable.
2: Hmm.
1: All three of them were horrible. Yeah, I don't know what you thought about the movie. I
0: I really liked it. Um, I found it very engaging. I I liked the style. that sort of, I felt it was a mix of like. Yeah, like had a neorealist style where it's just observing daily life um, in this train station. But I also had like a strong like thriller or even proto slasher vibe to it. This came out in 1958, like two years before Hitchcock's Psycho. Um, but it felt like it was an early version of that in a way, like it's, it's about this very psychologically disturbed young man. He's kind of obsessed with, uh, women. He's kind of very sexually repressed and he, that, that repression manifests through sort of violence and obsession and fetishization. So I thought that kind of exploration of very disturbing male psychology was really interesting and really well done, um, and yeah I thought it was a lively kind of interesting film it feels like you're living in that train station you just see all sorts of life go past um from you know people in suits very wealthy walking around um having affairs all the way down to you know people just trying to scratch a living from the gutter wearing rags um, it was just kind of this big cross-section of Egyptian life at the time. So yeah, I mean, I like sort of darker, sort of scarier films, so I think this really appealed to me. But yeah, I can definitely see how it's, it's a kind of a grim portrait of humanity as well. Um, but I think that, I think that's more like a, a social a reflection of maybe the social conditions, like this is a very tough world to live in and this is kind of how these characters survive. But yeah, they're not necessarily very likeable characters.
1: Yeah, that that kind of the thing that like tore me with with this movie. Like, so the one thing we didn't mention is that the movie is written and directed by Yusuf Sahin, and he also plays the one of the main roles in Aoi hmm. in the movie. But uh, I'm not sure why he didn't like develop the characters and give them a like an, and like a redeeming kind of quality hmm. because all all three of them are and and because they're downtrodden, they're all horrible that that kind of i dislike from his betrayal i like as you said i like the idea of the movie that heroes, the day-to-day fly at the king station mm-hmm. the slasher murder i found it like a weird kind of diversion in the movie it mm-hmm. came out of nowhere mm-hmm. at, at least to me was, yeah. i thought the story was about those people uh, kind of felt like a cheap way to end the movie. I I would assume that the studio requested a sensational part to the movie for them to sell to the public. Well, actually... uh, They added that.
0: I mean it could it could possibly have been from outside forces but this film apparently did very poorly like it was sort of people audiences were outraged when it was released because of the depiction of violence and sex and the kind of the disturbing mind of its protagonist um so it was it was largely rejected at the time of its release by audiences and then kind of had a critical reappraisal in subsequent decades 20%.
1: And the movie, we also didn't mention that the stars are, in the movie at least from the movies we we saw for this episode, does have some stars from that era. Andrew Ripstone, who plays Hanuma, was a sex symbol uh, back in the day. Mm, I can she was see why. <laughs> called, uh, yeah, she was, I, I actually, in this movie I, I, I saw her, why her choices made her the sex symbol.
0: Yeah, she was gorgeous.
1: She was called the uh, Men of the Marilyn Monroe uh, of the east around that time hmm. i in this movie i saw why uh she she, she was a sex symbol based on her choices so if you saw like the way she dresses compared to the other women in the movie who are wearing the same garb she's the only one who decided to put a belt on mm-hmm. just to show her curve to show her you know, her waist. Like she couldn't, you know, underdress, I would assume, based on, you know, laws or something. So the only way she could get away with it is just to put a belt on to, to make the dress tighter. Or the way she was, you know, playing that role a little bit too sensual. Because hmm. yeah. I've known her, like, in her later years, seen her on TV when she was really old. Hmm. Now I see it. Uh, and the other star in the movie, which, uh, Pericchioli, which he played over three, her, what is it, her fiance in this movie, he was also a, a big star from back in
0: the day. Now, now I've, I actually found those two characters somewhat um, sympathetic. Like, I think Hanuma. Is kind of just trying to survive, and she kind of uses her sexuality to allure customers. And you know, maybe she's a bit acid tongued <laughs> towards people. But I didn't, I, I didn't find her that uh, uh, as unlikable, maybe as uh, Kinawi. Um, and even um, I've written him down as Abu, but I think you had a different name for him, the, the union leader. Um, I think he has some like uh, you know detestable qualities. I mean, he beats he he beats up his um, fiance. Hanuma, but I thought like his attempts to address some of the worker exploitations was was admirable But y- you found them ir- irredeemable It was
1: like I wasn't a for him when he was unionizing But then he went ahead and he beat her like yeah. why? Yeah, yeah, why made that choice? Why? why? <laughs> like Make it a little bit gray not he's a horrible person who would be a, like a defenseless woman that was uh, You know horrible that that scene and for her, I think the the scene that I like made her redeemable to me is the way she rejected Inouye. Oh, it was okay. very, uh, very harsh and aggressive toward him.
2: Hmm.
1: I don't know if it came across in the. I didn't read the subtitles, but she was very nasty to him.
0: You mean because she kind of like like played along with it for a little bit and then lured him into this full sense of security and then rejected him?
1: I rejected him very harshly. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a nice way. To... Yeah,
0: that's a good rejection. point. That's a good point. I just, I just took her as a very like, I don't know, hard edge kind of person. Like, you don't know, she seems to have had a tough life, and that that kind of informs the way she treats other people. But yeah, I guess that she could have been a bit kinder in that situation. That was before his his true character had been revealed. He, he up until then he seemed like a pretty harmless, pathetic figure.
1: But she pushed him to, to on this murder spree. So if it wasn't for that conversation, he wouldn't tried to kill that other world.
0: Um, yeah I don't know it's hard to tell like how what actually you know sent him over the edge um, I think it's clear he he's pretty disturbed from the moment we meet him and that this he, he was always capable of this um and if it wasn't Hanuma, it would have just been some other girl who he perceived as sliding him in some way. I don't know; it's hard to tell. But I think I don't know. His actions are so extreme that I, I don't think he, you know. Um, I think he was always capable of this. But yeah, the the violence um, and, and the sexuality was quite uh, graphic for a film from the 1950s. I don't I don't think I'd ever seen anything like this in Hollywood films from the 1950s. Um, so I was quite surprised.
1: They did an off, uh, off script, so there was like they alluded to it. They weren't explicit with the violence.
0: Um, I mean, the the murder, the stabbing. You don't, yeah, you don't actually see it, but you see the knife being raised and plunged, and you hear the flesh ripping open, and you see the blood dripping out of the uh, the crate, um, and the sexuality, like the part where. Um, Hanuma's kind of showering with her clothes on, I thought was was pretty erotically charged. Um I, I yeah, I had never seen anything like that in, in classic Hollywood films.
1: Yeah, it was surprising to see it yeah. in an Egyptian cinema. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that I would agree. That that scene but I think that's her choice. I think Hendristum kind of made that choice to make it overly sexual.
0: Hmm. I thought um it's in, it was interesting, like just this mix of like incongruous features. Like you just had so many different people from so many different walks of life crossing over at this train station. And at several moments, there's almost like allusions to ancient Egypt. Like there's a moment where the camera kind of pans up to Quinawi and you can see like an ancient Egyptian statue just behind him, like just beyond this modern building of the train station. And then um, I read somewhere there was other allusions to ancient Egypt, like the cat as this symbol of um, death. He keeps trying to kill the cat. Um, and also the act of him killing this woman and then boxing her up. Some critics saw that as this allusion to mummification. The, the film has been interpreted as Egypt at a crossroads. There's this kind of collision between modern and ancient Egypt. You know, there's, there's the people of the poor classes. There's a the kind of up and coming middle class. Um, there's this modern place, presumably built by the British um, while they were there this symbol of the clockwork, like rhythms of modern life, everyone coming and going. And it just doesn't quite, or it seems to work a lot of the time, but uh, the the culmination of this film shows where it stops working and the clock kind of breaks down and all hell breaks loose. And all of these people who up until then have been, you know, selling their wares and and conducting the trains and going about their daily life to a, a pretty regimented time schedule suddenly are, you know, running around the train station screaming accusing people of murder people are throwing you know holding up knives running across the tracks so it just seemed to be this kind of combustion of um of modern life
1: also the pursuit of whatever little power that people have and the way they want to you know hold on to them like the Mm. other person who did not want people to unionize Mm. the only reason because he lose power, whatever, this little bit of semblance of power that he had, and he was willing to sacrifice the workers' lives and livelihood Mm -hmm. just to maintain that semblance of power. That was interesting, kind of. The the push against unionization from a guy who would benefit from it, Mm. that that was
0: interesting. Mm -hmm. I didn't exactly know what to make of that subplot. The Union subplot, but it, I thought it might have been sort of gesturing towards the growing power of socialism or socialist politics in Egypt after the 1953 revolution. I think that was led by a lot of socialists. So maybe that that kind of um, conversation was in the air of Egypt back then, um, you know, the workers' rights and equal division of, of labor and power and all that. Um, and you see other kind of political influences. There's a, there's a brief shot of a group of kind of proto-feminists arguing against um, you know, domestic labor and domestic exploitation. Um, you see like a, a kind of bunch of rockers in a train carriage at one point drinking and partying uh, with uh, Hanuma, and she's handing out drinks. I thought that was a fun little moment as well. So you just got lots of different influences from culture and, and society or converging in this one place.
1: Interesting part is that like, at least to me, the drinks look like Coca-Cola is the way that bottle, the bottle shape is iconic. Mm -hmm. So it it is a little bit at a crossroad is that you're, you're seeing it as they're drinking and partying. I don't know if it's censorship that prevented them from, you know, being a little bit more explicit Mm -hmm. because it seems a bit too much of a, you know, Coca-Cola ad of people drinking Coke and partying. Right.
0: Yeah, I, I assume it was meant to be alcohol, but they just couldn't <laughs> couldn't show that.
1: Feminism subplot was really in the not a subplot, just in the, really in the background, and I, I think it went nowhere, even in Egypt. I don't know if, if he was trying to reference any movement because I don't think it was successful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, looking at it from today.
0: Yeah, one uh, critic pointed out that um, this film or this character. Kinawi was highly resonant or sort of prescient towards the the incel movement that we're dealing with today like all of these young men who are isolated and feel like they can't speak to women and kind of resent women because of that. Um, So I thought that was interesting that um, a lot of the psychosexual issues that are depicted in Kanawi are things that are still uh persisting on the internet today and the internet being this it's sort of like a train station this this modern or postmodern crossroads of uh of culture from all walks of life and all parts of the world
1: yeah the, the self representation was definitely there especially his mantra that the whole point for him is to go back to his family and prove to them that he's not a loser. Mm. He was able to get a girl yeah. at the end of the day. That was like his driving motivation throughout, because he is from Upper Egypt. Mm-hmm. There were at least stories that he, he is from Upper Egypt and he's more, more or less ostracized from his community. Yeah, And that's why, you know, his dream of building on the sea and the whole spiel he told her is to go back to them and be accepted by his community. And I think, yeah, that would be more or less resonant with, with the idea of the insult movement. And he put a maker there. He was fant- fantasizing. Yeah, go ahead.
0: And and his dream is seems to be very much like a traditional dream of what a man is meant to do. And the modern world doesn't quite jive with that. And I think you see that a lot with um, modern day, you know, incels and and what's called trad culture. This this yearning for a lot of young men uh, who feel like they can't find a, a, a woman um, or they feel like they're uh, they're um, unsatisfied with con- modern life, feminism, m- you know, the modern world and want to return to this fantasy past where they, they see themselves as the, the beneficiary. So that, that I guess that's a story as old as time, this this yearning for young men to return to tra- traditional life um, where they feel like they might have some power or they feel like they might have a place in the world, but the modern world just doesn't necessarily have a place for them. or they need to sort of renegotiate their, their role in the modern world. So again, just this clash of, of values.
1: Um... I don't see what the director is trying to say with the ending is that, you know, people who have problems, <sighs> they need to be locked up in a mental hospital, like the asylum was part of it. That was a, a very outdated mood b- of thinking of like, I'm glad we were not at that point anymore.
0: Yeah, the ending is uh, very uh, spectacular. It's very much just like action and danger and horror. Like there's a strong horror element of him running down the tracks, chasing her through the train carriages, holding the knife to her while people try and negotiate with him. Yes. And it's I, I guess like my my interpretation was like this is one of the victims of of the modern world. Like he just can't assimilate to this new society, and it just kind of drives him insane. But yeah, definitely wasn't a, a very progressive or or sympathetic um, way of dealing with a very disturbed person.
1: Yeah, like, I think the the director writer he was like very much an entity theorist. Like he doesn't believe people can change. It's like you know, people <laughs> were born into poverty; it's their problem because mm-hmm. they have cognitive defi- deficiencies, which I I really didn't like that mm-hmm. kind of method by that.
0: Which I was reading a bit about. Yeah. Um, Egyptian cinema in general and sort of scholarly interpretations of it. And one uh, critic commented that unlike Hollywood films, uh, Egyptian cinema is very much this idea that characters can't necessarily change. They can't grow emotionally. um, And the lines between good and evil are very clearly demarcated and characters are kind of governed by fate rather than their own will. Um, fate determines the outcomes or, you know, God or just kind of a, an, an all powerful morality or, or social hierarchy determines the outcomes you can't like forge your own destiny necessarily which i don't think pertains to all of these films necessarily certainly not the documentary at the end well maybe it does i don't know yeah um but that that underlying um, mentality maybe um shapes some of the values of these films
1: absolutely i think that's so true the whole notion like i think like even my big memory from the movies that i've seen it's Usually, like, the ending is more or less, uh, you know, goes back to that kind of uh, ideal is that, you know, things are the way they're supposed to be. And they tend to have kind of a little bit of propaganda. Mm. Of the, the government's good. You know, whatever you have is really great. Be happy with what you have. That that kind of fits with, with my memories of the movies that I've seen.
0: The status quo reasserts itself, um, which, to be fair, is often the ending of a lot of American slasher films. A lot of American slasher films end with kind of the the state, whether it's police or doctors or, you know, the hero um, kind of defeating the deranged killer and, and returning the world to normality.
1: Yeah, And it's not just like slasher movies. It's in general with uh, Egyptian cinema. Hmm. Interesting. But, uh, yeah. the, the status quo is good. Uh, might be my memory's faulty, but if I, if I remember correctly that movie of the immigrant who emigrates to, to the Netherlands. I think part of the story is that life was better in Egypt. Like that was the message at the end of the movie, rather than like the life that he fought for himself mm-hmm. living in the Netherlands.
0: Yep. All right. Uh Abdella, will you tell us about our second film for the episode? Is
1: it the second movie El Mumia or the Night of Counting Years, that's like the alternative title for it, uh, kind of dramatized and actually it's a fictionalized tale uh, of the discovery of the royal tombs uh, of the pharaohs for several dynasties. And the movie sh- shows us about the tribe who was selling uh, some of those artifacts that were associated with those uh, tombs in the black market. And how the government around that time was trying to crack down and find those missing tombs. And this whole movie shows the, the struggle of one person within that tribe and how he informed against his his tribe members uh, to the government about the location of those missing tombs.
0: And uh, was this the first time you'd seen El Momunya, which I think translates to the mummy?
1: El Momonya. Uh, yeah, first time I've seen al Mumia. I think this is the first time I've seen him, anything by Shadi al-Assalam. Uh, I've never heard of him before, like a lot, like Yusuf Shaheen, which his name is,
0: uh, well, you know, is known. Well, this is the only film he ever made. The only feature-length film he ever
1: made. Oh, really? Made. Yeah,
0: yeah, he was planning a second film uh, for decades. He was planning a second film, but he died before he could complete it.
1: So that makes sense. Because Yusuf Shaheen's name is, you would know it in passing, that this guy i never heard of him before, so yeah, this is the first time for mm-hmm. me watching il Mumia. I think that true story was more interesting than the one the one was depicted by the movie. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't surprised to find out that the the movie was actually funded by the Egyptian government,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which kind of more or less is consistent with our prior conversation because shows you that things are better off when the government has control <laughs> rather than when people rule
0: themselves. Mm-hmm. Well that's interesting. Yeah, I, I speaking for me, I really enjoyed this movie. Um I thought it was very haunting and ethereal but i should say this is very much like a, an art house film it's very slow and meditative lots of like panning shots of the desert and the ruins and people just kind of staring off into the distance not saying much um so if that's not your kind of film you might not enjoy this but i thought this was a really almost like a hypnotic film like the more you watch it you just kind of get lulled into this state of sleepiness and like but also unease i thought um like Cairo Station, there was a strong undercurrent of horror to this film, uh, but it's a very different kind of horror. It's kind of it's more like the existential feeling that uh, you're insignificant, because the the whole the whole film is about the ancient world and the fact that they're digging up these relics from thousands and thousands of years ago and they're living beneath the pillars or in the shadow of these ancient, ancient ruins from empires long dead. And it just makes you feel so insignificant. It makes you feel like your life means nothing. compared to the vast span of history or the expanse of the cosmos. So I loved all that. I love the dreamlike quality of the film. I love some of the shots are absolutely beautiful of them walking through the ruins and just people in cloaks walking around the desert. Like they look like ghosts. Like the story itself is is interesting, Um, but I found the mood of the film really, really effective for me uh, at least. But a, a lot of people I can imagine getting getting a bit bored by it
1: well so the, the, i think probably the, the the music the sound i think played the, the biggest role in setting up the mood mm. uh the the dialogue i f- found i found it a little bit stilted. felt more like a student project mm. uh, and especially the opening that like the round table the whole shot i don't know why i got that feeling that it was like a student film. I don't know if you got that. It seems like you didn't get this feeling. Seems probably just me. No, no. Th- this... I, I don't know. I had that feeling.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I don't speak <laughs> Egyptian Arabic, so I couldn't necessarily uh determine how well they were delivering their lines. Uh, but I I don't know the the uncle. I thought. Was a really really good actor had a lot of like gravitas, but no, I don't know. it, it seemed alright to me. But but yeah, I'm I'm certainly not a native speaker, so I can't necessarily determine the the uh the specifics of how well they were delivering the lines.
1: Well, not the delivery. I thought the actual di- dialogue, the way it's written,
0: oh, okay, helped sure.
1: a little bit. Yeah. To, to direct, which I don't know, gave me like a sense as more of a first draft. And the, 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 also the choice of having like this ominous round table, the dark room with the opening bell, that, that was also kind of like, felt like a student project, hmm. a funeral at the beginning, also like with everybody standing and not speaking, I get it, it set the mood, but also didn't feel real, felt also like a student love project, but those are my things. Mm. Overall, yeah, I like the haunting feeling of this movie. That the locations were beautiful. That the costumes, which I was watching, it like reminded me of Dune. Like, did the Dune, uh, uh, you know, costume designer take inspiration yeah, right. from this movie because it felt very eerily similar, right?
0: Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, my
1: nitpicks with this movie, which uh, I know, we chatted. Well, off-screen is, is, is the choice to, to, to have the whole movie in like modern standard Arabic mm. If it was a little bit weird to me to my ears other than like going with a big Egyptian mm-hmm. uh, it, it It sounded weird and the other thing is that whoever wrote it. They didn't do a thorough job of uh, making sure that all the words were actually Modern or even classical Arabic, because there were a lot of phrases that were so obviously Egyptian to me. Hmm. I know I wouldn't use those uh, terms, but that was a little bit kind of like the suspension of disbelief was a little bit disrupted.
0: Yeah, right. Uh,
1: and the other thing is because the movie has Egyptian cast members, and Egyptians have hard time saying the the letter J, J. J- they always say as a gap hmm. so that was a little bit weird when you're watching the movie and they're supposed to be speaking in classical arabic and you will see, you hear that you know that the, the accent is off mm-hmm. the accent is off over and over and over so like it would have been better off if they have conducted the whole movie in just under an egyptian dialect.
0: yeah it
1: would have been better off for me the other nitpick that i have with this movie that one of the minor characters, the seducer, was the cast for it was a actually movie star from that day, that And I found it like a really odd choice that you bring this very well established actress to just to play the seducer, like for a year role. And I felt like is there sexism in this director? Mm. Who the whole only way he saw this actress, you know, to be in this movie only as the user, I found it like, especially when I saw her and I recognized her, like I, felt, I felt it was, uh, I, I know we live in a different world than they did in 1969. Uh, I, I don't know, it didn't set right to see that this yeah. actress who had her own career just to play this tiny role.
0: Yeah, I agree. That was strange, Um, and I didn't know she was a famous actor, but the fact that the only woman in the whole film is a prostitute, brought over and her only role seems to be just like this symbol of the corruption of the modern world or the corruption of that comes along with you know selling your heritage to merchants it also brings in these seedy elements like that was all she was there for felt really disrespectful and the rest of the film is just these very stoic men conversing about very important topics that felt yeah very strange and um and sexist in terms of the use of classical Arab rather than Egyptian Arab, um, I, I can't speak to like how well it was done. It sounds like it wasn't necessarily that well done in parts, but I, I sort of took that as um, being done because the film is a period piece. I think it takes place in the kind of late 19th century. Um, and also it's set in this upper egyptian tribe that seems pretty isolated from the rest of egypt so i thought maybe the director was trying to get at the fact that this tribe has a has a strong link to the ancient world or a strong link to more antiquity and egypt and that's why their dialect is very unmodern and much closer to, to an older style of speaking. Maybe that's what he was getting at. But but I guess also the Cairo archaeologists are also using the classical Arabic. So it doesn't exactly make sense because you'd think they'd have the more modern dialect.
1: Pretty sure that's the, the reason there. It's just to set the movie in a different tone. Yeah. For people not to associate it with, with modern life. Mm. Uh, which is like, I don't, like, I don't dislike this choice. I like the choice to set it apart. I thought, I thought it was just needed a little bit more work to make it better.
0: Yeah, it stands out and it sort of takes you out of the film, or it can. Um, what did you think of the main character, what one is, and his kind of crisis of conscience that he goes through throughout the film after learning about what his tribe has been doing to the, to the ancient relics um, that they're custodians of? It,
1: that's kind of also like alluded to the point of what you've mentioned. It's just a, an art house movie, right? Cause mm-hmm. we're trying. He was the director trying to show us the movie through his point of view. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. Not my like typical preferences in terms of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I probably am a little bit. My judgment is colored by knowing his true story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't believe the story that they depicted So the true story is that, he didn't voluntarily uh, give up the information about the, the the tomb. He wasn't going through a crisis of with his tribe. Hmm. He was tortured. He was tortured by the government into uh. giving up the location.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's...
1: Yeah, that's what I lo- looked up about that, that story. It's, it says inspired by a true story. So I looked it up. But it's like I was a little bit like jaded by the reason that, you know, for know creating this uh, artificial story. And then when you find out that it was funded by the government,
0: that, mm. you know, that makes sense. Wow, that puts the but film that, in a very you know, different light. It's like propaganda.
1: <laughs> especially the ending, right? Where yeah. like the government was able to secure those tombs and transport them. Well, it turns out that transportation that actually happened ended up damaging most of the tombs.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Which is like another thing against uh, like what the government, like not, we're not, I'm not saying that the tribe, but they actually did by like selling uh, the paraphernalia, the black market is a good thing.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, probably they didn't do as much damage as the Egyptian government did back then.
0: Yeah, the film very much like positions the uncle as a villain for what he's doing. He's not just desecrating these um, tombs and selling off the, the jewelry um, or the treasure of these past pharaohs on the black market. Um, he's also, you know, killing people or, or beating up people who try and interfere with that process. I guess it kind of like maybe sympathizes the decision a little bit cuz it's meant to be like supporting the tribe financially but like that character the uncle is very much um cast as a kind of mob boss and the the archaeologists are sort of i mean they're not, they're sort of ambiguous Initially, like, they're not shown to be heroes, but by the end, one seems to come to the decision that it's better that these tombs or these mummies or these treasures be in the hands of the archaeologist and in a museum where they can be, um, I don't know, preserved for their cultural significance rather than just sold off um, for quick cash. But that's how the film presents it. But it sounds like history um, was a completely different version of how things went down.
1: Yeah. And also like the, the whole story with the uncle and the motivation of the tribe wasn't really fleshed out. Mm. It's very much here is a villain and they were doing it for this villainous reason, mm. like to get money and power. It wasn't well developed.
0: Mm. Yeah, the story itself felt kind of thin and um, it was hard to get a read on what Wanus was thinking a lot of the time because he spends so much time just silently brooding and staring off into the distance and they'll be having a conversation and he'll just seem to take forever to actually register what someone has said and answer them and there's several points where he gets angry like he gets angry when he sees the prostitute and he gets angry when he learns what has happened to his brother um, but for a lot of the time he just seems like numb to what's happening so um, yeah the, the story itself seemed to be less important than the, just the mood of the film and I think that's what I responded most to was just this really ethereal images and music where they're walking through the tombs um, uh, I think there's one line where the archaeologist says don't you aren't you scared of these things don't they frighten you and Wana and says you know these are my childhood friends we used to play amongst these statues and And at another point, the archaeologist and his um, guard are talking about the history of the pharaohs and the dynasties and how important they were and what, what was done previously to their tomb sides was an outrage and they need to sort of redeem that outrage by, by sort of saving these last few tombs. And then when they're reading the, the priest's description of why they moved the mummies, they refer to them as gods. And I sort of got a shiver down my spine, like this is just a different world entirely, what we're seeing here. That really hit me, I think, just the mood of the film.
1: Do you find like that conversation was a little bit kind of came out of nowhere because it felt like deserted into the movie like it didn't come naturally the whole discussion about the pharaohs where they I don't know I when I was watching the movies like where the hell did this conversation start like why did it start here <laughs>
0: um I don't know like yeah it could have been done for the benefit of the audience uh, particularly foreign audiences who are just kind of left scratching their head like why is this so important and then you realize oh okay this is a huge part of their history and ancient history uh it didn't no i I liked that conversation and it actually helped me understand what was happening a bit more but yeah i guess um it might have felt a bit out of nowhere based on what they were talking about. But I think maybe, I don't know, it felt natural because they were looking up at the tombs and they it seemed like they were reminding themselves what their mission was and why it was important. Um, but yeah, I guess it could also be seen as a bit of a like expi- exposition dump for the audience.
1: Yeah, it was an exposition dump. It's a cool thing. I learned stuff from them. Uh, like, why are they having this conversation now? Mm. At least I got that. The other thing is like they... Alluded, I don't know if it was stated that they're the custodians of those tombs, of like the uncle was betraying them. I think I got that impression. Mm. But they're, they've been, they were the custodians for like thousands of years, that tribe. Uh, In reality, they just happen chance found those tombs.
0: Oh, okay. Which kind of
1: defeats the whole notion that that this tribe is special, where when they were just a regular tribe was living in those in a part of the desert yeah the interesting story is that they they found the tombs when a goat herder uh, just lost one of his goats and when he went to look for her and kept hearing her voice and he found her down a shaft and -hmm. when he jumped to get her out he discovered that he was surrounded by tombs and he knew those tombs were special when he saw the golden uh, cobra
2: Yeah, right. Wow.
1: And all of that kind of mundane things that kind of, at least to me is more interesting, the the, the, the true story was made a little bit more ethereal in this movie, which I I don't dislike. I like it, but knowing the true story, I don't know, I'm a little bit, my judgment is colored.
0: Now, this film was a little bit like Kyro Station In the sense that it was not rejected when it was released but because because it was very well reviewed critically but it was largely ignored by popular audiences and kind of disappeared for a long time after its initial release in 1969 or maybe maybe it was even later than that because i think it was officially made in 1969 but it wasn't even screened until like 1975 in egypt and then it wasn't until like Recent years when um, Martin Scorsese, who runs the World Cinema Foundation, found a copy and restored it and screened it. And that's kind of how it was, um, you know, reintroduced into popular discourse and popular um, circulation. And he had a good um, description of the film, which I think kind of sums up some of my thoughts. He said that um, The Mummy or The the Night of Counting Years has an extremely unusual tone, quote, stately poetic with a powerful grasp of time and the sadness it carries. The carefully measured pace, the almost ceremonial movement of the camera, the desolate settings, the classical Arabic spoken on the soundtrack, the unsettling score by the great Italian composer Mario Nashimbini. they all work in perfect harmony and contribute to the feeling of fateful inevitability.
1: The music is is haunting. I think the music has probably, to me, played the biggest role Mm. in setting the mood. Yeah. The shots were cool. I uh, thought also the, the location and where they decided to, to shoot the movie was also cool. I think they shot on location.
0: Mm-hmm. In it, Was it Thebes? Uh, thebes was, that, was that where they were?
1: I'm not sure, but it looked real. Like Some of them looked staged, uh, like a soundstage, but some of the other locations looked real to me.
0: Mm. There were two other pieces of fiction that this film reminded me a lot of. The first was a Russian film called stalker by the director andrei tarkovsky which is i think it was released the end of the 70s it's a sci-fi film and these people go into this area where like strange things happen and there's all these kind of leftover bits of technology from like an ancient alien civilization and like the laws of physics or logic doesn't quite work the same as it does in the real world so just weird things happen and there's just this tone of surrealness and and horror and there's this constant menace in the air which you never actually see anything scary there's never a monster that pops up but there's just this constant threat that seems to be looming over all of the characters and this feeling of inevitability and insignificance that looms over the character so that that tone reminded me a lot of this film stalker and the other thing um which kind of connects to A Song of Ice and Fire is a short story by George R, R. Martin called The Stone City Which is another sci-fi about this pilot who's uh, kind of marooned on this very distant planet with lots of alien species living on it And there's this ancient, ancient city underground nearby that no one goes to because it's just weird things happen And he goes into it and he kind of just gets lost and it has this weird geometry where nothing makes sense He goes down one tunnel, he emerges out of a completely different section of the maze and he just keeps going deeper and deeper into the city, just starts seeing hallucinations and goes crazy and gets trapped down there. It kinda reminded me of that of that feeling as well, of just something so ancient that it it defies. So if you liked either of those two stories, you might like the tone of uh the night of counting years.
1: I would also like reiterate that neither Bab Hadid or Mumia. Kind of convey the typical Egyptian cinema. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're cool and all, and I I think both of them have their own merits. And definitely watch both of them. Mm -hmm. But one thing people should know that they're not getting a true taste of Egyptian cinema by watching either of those movies.
0: Well, let's let's move to a movie that maybe is a little bit more like the typical Egyptian film. Uh, which is a 1991 comedy called The Kit Kat, or El Kit Kat. Um, and this is a film that was written and directed by Dayoj Abdel Saeed, and it follows Sheikh Hosni, played by Murmoud Abdel Aziz, a blind middle-aged widower living in the El Kit Kat neighborhood in Giza. Hosni shares a house with his adult son Youssef and elderly mother and spends his days playing the lute, smoking hashish and gossiping with his neighbours. The sensitive Youssef yearns to escape the slums and move to Europe and begs his father to sell the family home to finance his dream. Hosni is a mischievous character who brightens everyone's day and refuses to let his blindness hold him back. The El Kit Kat neighborhood is intricately portrayed, giving a window into uh, lives of laughter and love, as well as desperation and despair. Um, I found this film pretty pleasant and absorbing, um, but not necessarily all that funny uh, as a comedy. But I'm still glad I watched it. What did you think of the film, Abdullah? It
1: wasn't funny at all, which is like a weird thing because when I saw the uh, what was it on IMDb or Wikipedia or whatever, whatever I saw it, it's like was described as a comedy. Yeah, it's not comedic. But I would say this movie is more representative of that typical Egyptian movies, although typical Egyptian movies tend to have actual comedy in them.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: kind of the, this kind of intergenerational struggle and kind of lighter tone it's not like really deep as the other two movies we just talked about uh-huh this is more or less uh, a typical Egyptian view. typical plot of Egyptian um I, I
0: i thought it was funny in parts like um i think there uh, are lots of lines that uh hosney says that are kind of funny like he just kind of makes fun of his blindness a lot Like when he's walking down the street And he tells the people who are putting up a sign That it's crooked and they laugh And then um, he, he meets another blind person And um, he was, he's leading him around the city And taking him on a boat And, and <laughs> I don't know It's just funny to see two blind men Kind of leading each other down the street And their their banter is just kind of light and fun And, and, and sweet um, uh, I thought the irate um, elderly mother uh, was, was pretty comedic this yeah, I think he just has like a mischievous uh, tone that's kind of like you know made me smile, and that's maybe where some of the comedic elements are. But it's definitely the film seems to be implying that a lot of this is kind of just to like make life livable. That he li- that he has a pretty hard life, and he and, and 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 all the characters have hard lives, and they have different outlets for dealing with that hard life. And um, Hosny deals with it by cracking jokes and gambling and smoking hash. Whereas his son is more kind of melancholic and is more about dreaming and yearning for a different life. And yeah, different characters deal with it in different ways.
1: Those comedy bits are a little bit on the absurd side.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, the blind leading the blind is kind of takes it to an extreme, or like where he found that guy in the bathroom, or the whole notion of people didn't know that the mics were on. Yeah. It was a little bit on the absurd side.
0: Mm hmm. Or the fact that he just keeps like stealing motorcycles and riding them through the, <laughs> through the neighborhood. I thought that was yeah. funny.
1: That was also absurd. Like uh, people would notice. Yeah. Like this is something you would find in a really in a movie that you wouldn't see in real life.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: So that that kind of also sets it apart from the new realism of, of the station. Mm-hmm. No, but overall, uh, I thought that the, the movie was kind of great depiction of kind of Egyptian life hmm. of like those struggles, and especially like the notion of uh, the longing to leave the country. This is a theme in a lot of Egyptian movies and TV shows.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. The notion that people don't want to stay thats a consistent theme. And this movie kind of fits in within that as uh, a general message. And especially that the, 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 I think maybe there is some sort of propaganda. like Government censorship is like the notion that the government trying to push is that even if you go or leave, make sure that you send your money back to Egypt. Because this is one of like things that you would I, I picked up on. You know the conversation that they had. You know, like they were portraying Yusuf as a little bit of a deviant because he wanted to go to Europe for himself, and they were telling him no, go to the Gulf, and he was like. Trying to, uh, to speak against uh, going to the Gulf because I think that the Egyptian government would support people who would send money back to Egypt. Mm.
0: Yeah. That, that,
1: what do you think of the movie?
0: That, that's interesting. Like um, that idea of yearning to leave. And I've seen it in other films that we've looked at in this podcast. There was a Nigerian film called Oimaf, which is about two characters who are yearning to leave um, Nigeria because they just feel stuck, like they can never get ahead and that kind of seems to be the vibe in this film that all of these characters kind of have their place in society and they can never really get out of that I mean Yousef goes to university uh, he graduates but he can't seem to get a a well-paying job to improve his lot he's still living at home and maybe you see that in Cairo Station as well like these characters are all, they've got their jobs if you're poor, you're poor for the rest of your life if you're selling newspapers, you're selling newspapers for the rest of your life if you're rich and wealthy, that's your role and you can you can have a good life. And that idea of upward mobility or, or, or changing your social conditions or social status is kind of like refuted by the status quo. You know, just learn your place. Um, this is how we do things. And, and the best you can do is just kind of like find an outlet, whether it's sex or drugs or crime or comedy or whatever it is. That's, that's the message I, I took from the film And I, I did like it like I, As I said, I found it a pleasant film And I liked the characters um, But yeah, it's just this undercurrent of tragedy I think and, and, and music as well I think that was a big outlet for a lot of the characters And they're kind of discouraged from playing music They're like, no, you, know, you need to be serious You need to focus on your career But music obviously has a big it's, it's important to people And it's important to express that part of yourself And that part of your soul So I thought it was quite sweet at the end when they both feel a bit defeated and they find each other in that garden and they play music together as father and son i thought that was a sweet scene
1: yeah and also i like how it kind of shows you you know a part of egypt you wouldn't see it like a an ad or whatever if you want to go to Egypt, because this is more of the neighborhoods of egypt uh, mm. that people live in yeah and i I really liked uh, the movie kind of showed a different Egypt more real part of Egypt
0: highly urbanized, highly you know
1: and not of... very well developed
0: yeah, yeah, yeah yeah. a lot of the buildings seem to be sort of very poorly maintained and and quite old which which is true of Egypt. Hmm. It's
1: not just the pyramid, which is like the, the image that we conjure up when we think of Egypt,
0: yeah, yeah, it's not just the desert and the Nile and the palm trees. Yeah, it's a huge country. It's like uh, 100 100 million, right? Yeah, 100 million people. It's a huge country. 109. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Is there any other characters you found interesting in the film? Oh. There's the divorced woman that has an affair with uh Youssef?
1: She was a little bit not well developed also. Like I I think I'm like picking mm. a lot of underdeveloped characters cuz Yeah. You know her whole story is that she's a uh, Divorcee, and you know, all she she wants is this guy. Like, she doesn't really know to begin with this kind of infatuation that she had with this guy. And she wasn't divorcee at the start of the movie, right? Um, writing for, for that guy to come back to her,
0: yeah. It was hard to tell. Like, it seemed like he she was meant to go meet him and live somewhere else, but she didn't want to go,
1: yeah for him to send her money to mm. buy a ticket to I don't know where I don't know if they meant it yeah maybe it wasn't that
0: right, it didn't that. seem like a good relationship
1: yeah she she wasn't very well developed but she had a prominent role
0: mm. yeah she had a decent amount of screen time uh, but it, it's a I I feel it's a shame that most of these films focus on men I, I would have I, I wish we had I got a got a film that you know had a had a stronger um female protagonist
1: right like Carrie station is the only one that kind of had a spotlight of the female character but even in that one she was like played as a sex object.
0: Mm. Yep.
1: And just like overly flirty she, she didn't have much of an agency. And the I I think
0: I liked she her wanted I liked her as a character yeah. and her sort of spunkiness and and um her determination to to survive but yeah mostly the other characters most of the other female characters in that film were kind of just like Eye candy for Kinawi, but yeah, that 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 character again seemed to be um, share that theme of wanting to escape your life and kind of fantasize about a different life, and and her drug was um was Yusef, um and kind of you know imagining a life with him.
1: Yeah, it, a life based on just she saw a few books that he had, and she was inferring that he's very intellectual. It's, mm. it's a very underdeveloped or like very shallow I would say Mm. relationship
0: yeah yeah what did you think of the ending um I mean there was a couple of endings there was Hosni revealing all the secrets of the neighborhood on the microphone and then there was him and his son kind of reuniting and playing music and then there was this scene of him uh, riding the motorbike what did you think of all that
1: the motorbike was a, like that. That's an absurd, and that's that's really how most Egyptian movies would end with kind of an absurd ending. Mm. So that one kind of struck all my side. But the microphone one was absurd, <laughs> and like everybody knew, and everybody knew who <laughs> started talking about that. <them. laughs> and just, like telling the whole thing, that was a little bit on the absurd side. Mm. That the, the one with his son was a little bit more touching. Mm. Yeah, I t- what did you think of that ending?
0: I liked it. I think it, um, like there was this, as I said, a strong, tragic undertone to the film. But I I think it left it on a, a happy note for me, that reconciliation and just that like zest for life that he has. Like he just doesn't let the world hold him back. Like he's, he just wants to do it because it just feels good. He wants to feel the wind rushing through his hair and just feel young again on the motorbike. Um, and I thought, I think the best thing about the film is like how intricately it sort of portrays this neighborhood. Like you really feel like you live there and just the chatter all around you. And, and he just, I don't know, that idea that like everyone underestimates him, but he actually knows everything about everyone because he's, he's, um, he's such a good listener. Um, you know, he really is a, an important part of that neighborhood. Um, so you get like the personalities of the place and you feel like you actually live there. All right, so let's uh, move on to our final film, which is a documentary. So The Square is a 2013 documentary directed by Jehani Nujam. It portrays the events of the 2011 Egyptian revolution, particularly the protests that concentrated in Cairo's Tahrir Square in opposition to President Mubarak's repressive regime. Despite violent clashes between protesters and security forces, Mubarak is eventually overthrown However, the elation of this victory is quickly dampened as schisms emerge between the protesters, the military and the Muslim Brotherhood. Nujem manages to embed her camera deep within the spectacular and frightening events, capturing the thoughts and feelings of a range of different participants as they grapple with conflicting visions for Egypt's future and the clash between revolutionary ideals and political realities. Um, I thought this was an amazing documentary and a really thoughtful investigation of a modern-day revolution with all of its highs and lows, inevitabilities, and unknowns. So, Abdallah, what did you think of The Square or Al-Maidan?
1: Yeah, it is the, be- the best movie of the four we have today, mm-hmm. definitely. You might need to put it like a warning for people before they watch it because mm-hmm. there are graphic scenes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah, there are. We,
1: you know, shows dead people, which is uh, I found it for me unsett- unsettling. Yeah. Uh, and also also shows people who suffer physically from the, 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 the regime.
0: Mm-hmm. That's the police. So pur- pur-
1: pur- yeah, pur- pur- that. that was a little bit graphic too. Yeah, yeah, a lot of brutality. I, I don't think it's police. It's just whatever regime that was in charge,
2: who mm-hmm.
1: sent whatever that force was. I do not know how to feel like having watched it and you know, knowing what we know now. But knowing that the whole revolution did not lead to democracy, especially now, mm. you're more or less back at somebody who is like a Mubarak again. So, you know, while you hope at the end of the movie that change is happening, where 12 years, almost 13 years out, doesn't seem like anything changed. Mm. That was very much a scary kind of thing, you yep. know, looking back ah, where, where we are right
0: now. Yeah, it is really sad. I mean, it's it's a very hopeful film in the first half, as you see how passionate all of these young people are to change things and how resilient they are in the face of really frightening um, state violence and state intimidation. And it feels like a victory about halfway through when the regime is finally overthrown and then you realize all of the, the problems with corruption or just, just, you know, the status quo. Like, it's very hard to change a culture, a political culture, or, or a system that can never really be reduced to one person. Like, um, Mubarak became, like, the symbol of a, of a repressive regime, and that's what they focus their energy on, overthrowing. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the system itself that needs reform, and that's a much harder thing to achieve. So it was... Um, It was tough but i loved seeing all the different personalities and all of the different ways they dedicated themselves to political action and the solidarity between the different groups and it's a very different like vision of egypt or an arabic country than we're used to in the west you see all the complexity of society the religious groups the secular groups the military groups all trying to negotiate and work together all having different visions, all having different, you know, goals for the country, but then for their own, you know, subgroups. So it's it's complicated. Um, I like the fact that, and in some way, that's like a, a universal story. All revolutions are going to have to contend with that. But I thought what was interesting in this one was how they used social media and they used their own, you know, phone cameras and social media to coordinate, but also to present their version of events. So they were actually competing. And I think uh, one of the characters says, this will be a war of images. You know, it's not just fought with blood and fists and chants. It's also about music and Facebook posts and YouTube videos. So I thought that was really novel and interesting. But yeah, it is very sad to see how the system persists. In the face of all of this passion and and, and hard work
1: yeah yeah very very much hard to watch. so the one that the one scene that really touched me is that mom who's standing next to her son's coffin and mm. she was like, repeating her last conversation with him where he told her you know will you be mad at me if i die at a martyr?"
2: Mm.
1: her response is that uh, I'm only gonna be mad because I'll miss you. Yeah, that's really like touched at my heart. That, like, especially like, like it happened, like just standing over him. And yeah. just, like or her reciting their last fight.
0: Yeah, and, and and it shows the cost of revolution. Like it's not just the fact that they're getting hurt. You know, it's one thing to stand up for your ideals, but when it's going to affect the people you love, that makes it a really tough decision. Um, there's another bit of uh, Megby from the M- Muslim Brotherhood When you see him at home And his daughter starts crying And she <clears throat> he takes her to another room Just to comfort her That was really sad Like the children are really worried About their parents And the stakes are really high um, I think what gave me the most hope Was the fact that they were able to Have those victories Like the state isn't strong enough To withhold the the will of the people Like if you get enough people together To defeat the military And to defeat the the politi- an individual politician, because they do succeed. They get rid of Mubarak, and then they get rid of the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood after he, you know, follows the same track of um, trying to assert absolute power. So they can win. There is power in, in, in people. But it's just it's a long game. They just have to keep trying, I guess. And it's a, the costs can be pretty high, so you can understand why why people can give up and lose hope. And I think you see that at an individual level in um, Ahmed, who's kind of like the de facto main character. This young guy who is kind of like a, a, an active participant in the protests and is there every night. What did you think of his character?
1: Yeah, he was very sympathetic. Mm. But Going back to uh, your, your point about gave you hope that people can overcome. But the problem is that they can't overcome until they don't. Mm. And right now, they're not overcome. Yeah, they, they stop uh, overthrowing the next of government. They, they, they succeeded three times. They succeeded at overthrowing Maduro. They succeeded at, at overthrowing the following, you know, interim uh, military rule, and they succeeded at overthrowing Orsi. With CC right now, there's not a mm-hmm. And he's been in power for 10 years now. So yeah. the people were able to mobilize for two years, but uh, at some point, it's not. That's kind of the disheartening part.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not the movie itself, it's just looking now at the time span that had elapsed and how much. Yeah. But, you know, nothing has changed.
0: Yeah, yeah. It is disheartening. And I think you see that sense of being disheartened during the movie in Ahmed. Like there's a moment where he's walking down the street and he just like doesn't even care if he gets hit by a car and he's just yelling and shouting. He's so sort of despairing about what's happened that they led this successful revolution and it didn't change anything and it was hijacked and the revolution had so much solidarity, but now it's split into infighting. And you can kind of see like how so many people who otherwise could be really productive members of society, like repressive regimes or these repressive social conditions can just kind of like threaten to crush their soul or crush their will. And they just kind of like become self-destructive. I mean, he doesn't eventually, like he he pulls himself out of that, but you can see his anger and his sense of like, nothing matters. so I thought that was a good insight into just the average young Egyptian man. What about Magby? What did you think of him and his um, role? Initially, very supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood, but then he kind of gets um, disenfranchised by them and and their compromises with the military.
1: I don't know if it was like uh, very much was he on screen, like his relationship. Like I don't know, maybe I missed that. Mm. What I remember from the movie is that he was fighting with with Ahmed, right? Yeah, yeah, because they were. Clashing on two different fronts.
2: Yeah.
1: I don't remember that he had a strong opposition to the to the Brotherhood.
0: Well, basically, the Brotherhood says, We no longer support, we're, we're no longer going to be uh, joining the protesters. So if you go to the protest, you're just going as an individual. And he says, Well, I'm going to go as an individual, just for myself, not as a representative of the Brotherhood. And then he's, he's disheartened by the fact that they're making these deals with the government and the things that uh, their leader does legislatively as he tries to get more and more power. Um, Yeah, it it seems like he was not supportive of that. And there's a great scene towards the end where he he and Ahmed make up, and Ahmed's like, I wasn't mad at you, I was just mad at the situation, which I thought was sweet, that there is this, despite all of the politics, there is this human connection between these two people that sustains and survives.
1: Right, yeah, that that, that was clear. I didn't like the uh, cat that he was in against hmm. directly. The ending of the of the movie with, without him saying, like, you know, we'll always be back. Hmm. And that kind of, like, watching that ending, that uh, people will mobilize, and knowing what we know. I don't know, I keep harboring on this point, but that kind of the thing that kind of hit me the most is that th- those notions of people can overthrow when they don't. And we know... They couldn't. Mm. That kind of the, the the thing that is, you know, is haunting the most.
0: Yeah, and it's a problem with a lot of post-colonial societies that their s- whole society is like taken over and reorganized by a foreign power, and they just have all of these problems. Even after the foreign power is gone, that that system still persists. And it wasn't that long ago that that Britain controlled egypt and they've just had a lot of problems since then um and a lot of different influences and a lot of a lot of conflicts so it is tough so one day maybe um the other thing one of the characters mentions was this idea of the pharaoh that um i can't remember the leader's name but someone refers to him as a pharaoh because he he declares like ultimate power and ultimate uh, sort of control over the egyptian state and one character morsi. says we morsi was it uh,
1: the, the president morsi yeah the president we yeah you want to be
0: a a, a, A pharaoh yeah um and one character says we need to get away from this idea of the pharaoh that this idea of like the ultimate ruler of egypt is kind of like hard-coded into certain attitudes about what egypt is as a state or a nation we need to get away with away from this and towards a more democratic system but that might be a hard mentality to break both for its upper classes or its rulers but also for everyday people who are sort of so conditioned by the status quo that it's hard for them to imagine a different system
1: yeah especially like in the movie they did uh, like show that conversation of uh you know
0: you're
1: you're organizing against but you're not organizing for something
0: yeah that was a
1: great point that's that's so true Mm. that's so true that kind of like spelled out like the uh, like the reasons why you know uh A second dictator came to power. Probably why third dictator also came to power.
0: Well, it it explains why the Muslim Brotherhood was so successful, because they had very clear goals and you can argue about the ethics or the morality of their goals or execution, but they had very clear goals and they worked towards those goals. So the people had a goal, which was to overthrow Mubarak, but they didn't know what to do after that in practical terms, and they struggle with this idea of compromising or making deals, even though that's ultimately the way to get things. It reminds me of a quote from the American film Lincoln, where um, uh, Lincoln and this kind of radical guy are talking about slavery, and they both agree, all right, we need to end slavery. But there's different ways of doing it and the radicals like we need to lock up every southerner and give all of their land to the slaves that's the right way that's the moral thing to do is to end slavery and lincoln's like well yes i agree that's the right thing but you know a compass can tell you true north but if you just go barreling north you might end up in a bog and get stuck so we need a map i guess so i guess that kind of resonates with me that you can have goals but you need to be able to have a plan as well and you need to be able to retreat at points and go around things and make deals and compromise but then on the other side if you compromise too much you might the system itself might still be preserved and all of the injustices might be preserved or unpunished so it's it's tricky it's hard to know exactly what to do it's an ongoing process of reform
1: absolutely yeah like, like that's kind of the the, the, the dangers of fantasizing about a better world without, you know, having a, a collective, you know, understanding of what that what better world is.
0: Mm. And because the it, the other main character, uh, the actor, Khaled said his name. Yeah, Khalid.
1: Apparently became famous later on.
0: <clears throat> yeah, well he, he made that it point. That I didn't know. He he makes the point that even when they achieve elections, there's no good choices. <laughs> The, the, all the all the parties are just made up of the previous regime so it's not really a true choice it's not really a true true democracy at that stage
1: right yeah if if you if you're now organizing for something you only if you only mobilize people because you tell them that you know all the all old woes will you know will be gone by getting rig, rid of that person mm. it's such an easy way right for to to talk, like, to talk at people people's hearts yeah, yeah. Uh, it doesn't give people purpose it doesn't give them something to achieve mm. It gives them the like this easy solution. Just get rid of that. Purpose. And once you're trying to or like try to enact anything later on, it's easier for other people to use the divide and conquer because you, you know, it's easy for them to say, well, it's not the way to do it or like for the brotherhood to come in well have the word of God that's what that's what we should do like that's what like kind of made it easier path yeah, to win that election
0: mm-hmm. all right Um I think we're almost ready to wrap up did you have any final thoughts on the square
1: yeah I would say this is probably the best of the bunch of the movies we saw today so like if people are deciding definitely watch the, this one the mm-hmm. square yeah yeah uh you know be mindful that there is a lot of graphics, When you'll see that people with paint of hard and they would would we'll just get up
2: hmm
0: yep um are there any other Egyptian movies you would recommend to the listener?
1: I would say movies by Yassin in general those are the ones I remember growing up watching on t v uh movies by Fatima, Shadia. Personally, those are kind of the stars of, of the black and white kind of era of movies
2: mm-hmm.
1: the movies are lighter i, like, I don't remember Egyptian movies today to, to comment much about the past
0: mm-hmm. yeah I, I as i said i haven't actually seen any other Egyptian films but um, i was reading through the list of recommendations you posted and some of them sounded really interesting. Um, One was by the same director who made Cairo Station called Alexandria Y. And I think it's sort of semi-autobiographical and it's about this young kid who has a love of film uh, who lives in Alexandria. And he start, you know, it's about him loving Hollywood films, but then making his own films, um, which looked quite good. Uh, there's a movie called The Land, which apparently a very important and influential film. A film called The Wife of an Important Man, which explores corruption, um, but from a woman's point of view. Um, There's a more recent film called The Yacoubian Building, which uh, is sort of an ensemble film about a bunch of different characters from different classes who live in the same building and interact in different ways. And that that looked really, really good from the trailer. Two other films were The Sin and Nightingale's Prayer, which both look very good, but very depressing as well, um, showing the mistreatment of women. And then the final one was A Taste of Fear, which was quite a controversial film. It was blacklisted when it was first released because it showed a lot of the brutal policies of the then government or the, the police system. It shows up protesters being locked up and tortured and uh, the sort of the, the crisis of conscience of one of the guards. But um, that looked quite good as well. Uh, so I would um, check those out if you can and I'll, I'll see if I can find them. Um, yeah, that brings us to the end of this installment of the movie Passport. Let us know what you thought of the episode and if you have any other Egyptian movie recommendations. And let us know what other world movies you'd like to hear us discuss. You can leave comments or questions on our WordPress page or join us on the Vassals of Kingsgrave Discord server. I'd like to thank my fellow host for this episode, Abdullah. And thank you for listening. Goodbye, or as the Egyptians say, ma'el salama.